Welcome to Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. Today, I'm going to talk about a problem with fake science, which is not quite the same thing as pseudoscience, that is, astrology, ESP, and the like, which I talked about last time. Fake science papers appear in real science journals, and they deal with real science topics, including molecular biology and cancer. But there is, I learned, a problem with journals being contaminated by papers that pretend to describe real studies when no actual experiments or studies were done. The papers often have charts and tables of data that have been either copied or plagiarized from other papers or just made up. And these fake papers may be a more consequential problem than pseudoscience because they can be very hard to spot. For this episode, I'll be talking to two different experts who've been spending a lot of their time recently tracking down these fake papers. The first is David Sanders. He's a virologist at Purdue University, and he's been on this show before talking about the origins of the pandemic. He's someone I've interviewed over the last 10 years about different science topics. I first crossed paths with him when I was covering a controversial and questionable claim about the discovery of arsenic-based life. And as far as we know right now, there is no arsenic-based life. Today, I'm going to ask him about his detective work in uncovering fake science. He says there are businesses that make fake papers and sell them to scientists. We talked about these businesses, which the scientists call paper mills, and we also talked about how these fake papers could get past the gatekeepers at scientific journals. And then we talked about the harms that might come from contaminating the scientific literature with fake papers. So it sounds like you're saying there's a spectrum then. There are papers that are not fake papers, but that have some references the authors haven't read themselves that are not exactly what they appear to be. Or I think there's an implication if you cite something that you have looked at it, that it's relevant, that you, you know, your paper is expanding on this previous body of knowledge. And so that isn't necessarily the case. But then you talk about fake papers. So is there a sort of a spectrum and what would constitute a fake paper and how common are they? So here are some examples of things that are definitely wrong, probably should result in the retraction of the article. You know, it isn't necessarily that the whole article is fake. So these are things like image duplication, image manipulation, claiming to have done experiments in one way, but actually having done them in a different way, plagiarism, taking other people's texts, or even taking your own text and not citing it adequately, taking images from other articles and using them without uh, permission. So all of these things are wrong. Oh, they're sleazy. And when you say image (laughs) duplication, you're talking about taking an image from another paper and claiming that it's yours? Well, there are a number of forms of this. One can take an image from somebody else's paper. One can take it from one's own paper, but it purports to represent a different experiment. I would be willing to say that upwards of 5% of the literature has issues like this. 
Those are pretty serious issues. So when I look at an image that's in a paper, I assume that image represents the work that's described in that paper. I would not assume that it was copied from some other paper. That's correct. And there's a substantial literature that that assumption would not be correct. Wow. Okay. So lots of kind of shady dealings going on. Respectable scientific journals use a form of quality control called peer review. Since science can get pretty specialized, those peers that are reviewing a paper are supposed to be in the same field as the authors, and that way they have the expertise to evaluate the research before it gets published. This seems like the kind of thing that people like me assume peer reviewers should be looking for and flagging. There is no training for peer review. You're not required to be trained for peer review. There's all sorts of informal things and there are programs that people try to train you, but there's no requirement for any training. There's no certification for being a peer reviewer. Yeah, so let's talk about the more extreme end of the spectrum. So what what would you describe as a fake paper and how do those get through peer review? So fake papers, are we refer to them as products of scientific paper mills. Paper mills are companies that take data that exists on the internet or images and they create a paper for you and they take text that exists on the internet. It's called template plagiarism. And they jumble them all together and create a scientific article out of that. The scientific article is not based upon what it's supposed to be. The images are not based upon the proteins or the cancers or whatever it is, or, and the, the data in the tables and so on is not based upon actual experiments that are referenced in that paper. They are based on some other experiments, some other images, and they use a template and they create a brand new article and then they sell it to people who can stick their names onto this article that has nothing to do with reality. But these are completely made up articles and they tend to be in particular fields, uh, for example, micro RNAs and cancer or traditional medicines and cancer or long non-coding RNAs and cancer or circular RNAs and, and cancer. There are images that recur in multiple articles representing completely different cell lines, cancers, micro RNAs, blah, blah, blah. But they're clearly they're the same image, and uh, frequently these articles are all submitted at the same time, so you can't check to see that it's already existing in the literature. But they're they're just done, and they have they have no relationship to uh, reality. This is really scary that you were talking about cancer articles. I mean, is this yes. stuff that is actually affecting the direction of cancer research, and even affecting the way cancer patients might be treated? So I've been looking at this, and there are patents based upon these fake articles. Does that mean, we do? Well, I guess we, somebody's making some money. Somebody's trying to design a diagnostic on the basis of phony data. What kinds of people would buy these paper mill papers? I don't want to talk about people. Okay. Uh, as I said, I prefer to talk about institutions. Okay, what kinds of institutions would have people that buy these papers? In most of the cases that we have detected so far, It is people who work at hospitals in China. We are talking about on the order of 10,000 
articles. There was a recent estimate uh, in the journal Nature uh, about this. I will just say that is a um, that is a number that I came to independently before the article in Nature, but Nature mentioned that as a, it's, we're, we're talking about at least 10,000 uh, papers. But, and here's the important part, they are being published in Western journals. So the Western journals share the culpability in this process. And these Western journals are uh, loth to take this because, well, you don't make any money You can't continue to support the journal unless people publish in it. A problem that goes hand in hand with these fake science papers and paper mills is the proliferation of what are called predatory journals. These are journals that employ fake peer review, and according to Dr. Sanders, they're out to make money and not to advance scientific knowledge. Now, these journals, is there a way to, you know, warn the public which kinds of journals are likely to publish these? Are these not mainstream journals, but sort of some other kind of journal where they they make money by actually getting paid by the, the authors of the papers pay them to publish? Yes. So it turns out it tends to be both lower tier legitimate journals and what are referred to as predatory journals. Predatory journals, yes. And so a predatory journal is one where people will actually pay to have their work published. Well, it turns out that in most cases nowadays, especially for open access journals, you still have to pay. The point about a predatory journal is that it's giving a facade of peer review and legitimacy when it's not, it, it actually is not providing real peer review services uh, the whole goal is just to make money. Okay. It's not actually to provide any service to the community. It's not run by a society. It's not run by a legitimate publisher. The whole, it, the whole purpose of it is just to make money. It is not to serve science at all. Uh, the, and as I said, the peer review is completely fraudulent. Why would um, anyone who knows anything about anything pay attention to what was in a predatory journal? It's psychological, right? Even people who are aware, they say, yes. All those journals from XYZ publisher are predatory, except the one I'm involved with, or except the one that I've published in. I, you know, I actually got some good peer review and so on and so forth. Uh, so people convince themselves. I can tell you, I have colleagues who have published in some of these predatory journals. So tell me about your particular research into this problem and what you've learned. Sure, thank you. So I was interested in the image duplication, but I was interested in what does textual duplication tell us about the paper mill process? Again, most people in this field are looking at images. I am interested in in text and I'm interested in text because what it potentially tells us about the ethics of the, the science scientists, the journals, and the institutions. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah, so, you know, I wanna get back to kind of how this affects the general public. And, you know, we're sort of told that we should trust science, that we should pay attention to what scientists tell us, especially about our health. And yet this all seems very troubling that there is a lot of science that isn't trustworthy. So I'm wondering what, like, what the take-home message 
should be. I mean, I, all the time I, I read the science news, you know, not with underlining. What I mean is news on scientific issues. And I see them citing these journals that I've never heard of or are frequently predatory or whatever with no discrimination whatsoever. You know, if we have a field which is completely contaminated by these paper mill articles, we should just stop publishing in those fields until we've got the past literature cleaned up. Because what happens is people are continuing to cite things that are clearly garbage. And one of the things that I'm currently working on with comparatively little success is there is a whole secondary literature which cites predominantly the paper mill literature. And because that paper mill literature has not been retracted, they say, well, you know, what could we do? It's, you know, it's still out there and they're just citing it. Well, let me go back to that example that I just gave you of the two articles, table identical, you know, two different cancers, different microRNAs, couldn't possibly be true. They're both actually likely to be paper mill products. The second article is about ovarian cancer. And interestingly enough, the table of data about patients includes approximately equal numbers of male and female patients. Remember what I said, ovarian cancer. Yeah, yeah. so this seems like a tip off that this is a, not a product of, of legitimate scientific research. This article has been cited, I don't remember, 15, 19 times. In legitimate papers? In, people, in, in papers that where people are actually doing experiments or in other paper mill papers? In a combination. And certainly in review articles on ovarian cancer. Oh, so someone who's writing a review article might cite a bunch of garbage articles. Now, isn't that really lazy? Shouldn't a person writing a review article scrutinize the different articles that are going to be included in that review? Lazy is the word. And I've actually written a very long article about how to write and how not to write a scientific review article. And let me assure you that I would even say nowadays, even the majority of review articles, including many that are cited hundreds to thousands of times, are written in exactly that lazy fashion. That's terrible. It is clear that the people have not read the review articles that they are citing. These are articles about things like ovarian cancer, a deadly disease. Yes, indeed. That is correct. Unbelievable. Well, this gets back to this question of, you know, people are being told, well, you should trust science. You should trust science that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work against um, the coronavirus and you yes. should vaccine and people are, you know, how are our members of the general public to navigate this world where we're told to trust the medical science establishment when there's there's a lot of sleazy behavior as there is in almost any field of endeavor. And yet yes. you want to think that science has good checks and balances against this. Okay. So if we, from the public's perspective, I would say that there are three items. Number one, the vast majority of science is in fact conducted in, in an ethical manner and is actually attempting to get at the truth. And the vast majority, the researchers are authentically engaged in trying to understand the phenomena 
that they are studied. So that's first. Second is you do have to be aware of sources. Predatory journals, as I said, there are lists. You just should trust nothing from them. I had a, a friend of mine with cancer who saw an article in one of these predatory journals and contacted me to find out whether they should alter their treatment on the basis of what they read. And I said, absolutely not. What was the article telling them to do? I can't, I, uh, uh, legal, legal consequences. And while those predatory journals have fake peer review, he says that there are problems with real peer review in other science journals, and that often lets in things that are misleading or wrong. One of the things that has happened uh, repeatedly in peer review is that people are submitting the names of peer reviewers that have, say, famous names, or not famous names, but phony email addresses. So when you're asked for the names, you're also asked for contact information. And instead of supplying contact information for the actual famous person or the person in the field, they create a new email address and they themselves or some a friend of theirs actually does the peer review. Uh, well, and, and submits it under the name of the famous person? Correct. What, where are you seeing this happening? Is this in basic biology research? Is it in genomics research? Is it in biomedical research? The articles that I read really span all of those fields. I regularly read both in the medical literature as well as in the broader biological literature. You know, it tends to be, because of my own interests, in the you know, biochemical spaces rather than in the ecological space. But, uh, bio, you know, biochemical can go from neurobiology to biochemistry to virology to immunology, uh, things like that. So, so this is stuff that affects the drugs people take? That oh, they, absolutely. That doctors recommend to do that, you know, the drugs that are given to people in the hospital, it could have huge effects. Absolutely. Absolutely. Making sure that the literature is an accurate reflection of the scientific evidence affects everything. My next guest is Elizabeth Bick, who's a biologist turned independent fake paper detective. She was among a number of experts that Dr. Sanders said had really set the groundwork for some of the research he's doing. And when I looked her up, I found that she's becoming famous in the scientific world for her ability to detect cheating in charts and graphs. So I was just reading about some of the work that you do and this problem with paper mills, and I'm kind of amazed and horrified at what's going on. Um, I think yes. the general public doesn't know that much about this. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's something that I've learned about fairly recently, uh, like a year ago or so. And yeah, it's 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 almost like organized crime. It's something that you just did not realize existed. And there it is. It's it's there. And it's probably been around for a couple of years. How did you get started investigating the, I guess, misconduct or tables that weren't what they were supposed to be, charts and tables in papers that were not what they were billed to be? Right. I've, I've been actually working on science misconduct since 2013, not on paper mills, but first on plagiarism and on image duplication. And so working on paper mills is something that is 
for about a year ago that I started doing that. I was first alerted to it when other people had found that there were a bunch of papers that all seemed to have very similar images of protein blots. And the images themselves were similar to each other, but not identical, but they all had the same noise in the background. So they all had the same pattern. If you enlarge the images and, and enhance the contrast a little bit, then I think by now we have around 600 of those papers that all seem to belong to the same set of papers. They all appear to have been designed by the same institution. Yeah. So these are tables that are supposed to represent original data that were collected by the researchers to demonstrate something. And they're actually just copied from some other, where did they originally come from? Was some, what, was there somebody who wrote an honest paper and then, a, and it got stolen and then a bunch of people just put it in their paper? Or how does this come about? So we have found different paper mills. So some paper mills, the one I was just describing with all the same background, those don't really seem to have a lot of tables with problems, but they have a particular set of images that they all, I think it was artificially generated even. And then there's another set of papers that all seem to have a very similar table. I believe these tables are made up. They're, they're not stolen from other papers. They're they start with a template, a table, let's say so many patients, so many men, so many women, this is their age, this was the type of cancer they had, this was the stage of the cancer. So it's a table with the characteristics of the, the patients that have been studied. But then they, they have that table and they for every paper, they change a couple of the parameters. They change the number of men or women, or they change the cancer from prostate cancer to breast cancer or gastric cancer. They change some other parameters. And, and voila, you have a new paper. But I don't think there was actually any patient involved. So to switch gears, now you are a working scientist and you got interested in looking at misconduct. Was there something that inspired you to make that change? I just read about misconduct and that fascinated me. Like most people are fascinated by, you know, a good murder story or, huh. or, a, or a, yeah, some juicy uh, yeah, misconduct anywhere. I think those are things that trigger your fantasy and your, I don't know, I was, I was grabbed by it. And so I started actually with plagiarism. I heard about that and I just decided to, to test one of the sentences I had written in the past in Google Scholar to see if somebody else had written that. And sure enough, I found a hit. I found that somebody else had used my sentence uh, in a later paper. And I'm like, I was so angry. <laughs> and I, but I sort of funneled that anger towards like, let's do something useful with it. So I found one paper after another that had plagiarized text. I did that for about a year. And some of these papers were retracted. I reported all of them. Then by accident, I came across a PhD thesis that had an image that was reused a couple of times. And it had a very characteristic little stain that I recognized. And it had been reused to represent different experiments. That was a PhD thesis, but those chapters had also been published as scientific papers. And that got me hooked into scanning scientific papers for duplications. And I scanned by now, I don't know, 50, 60,000? I have no idea. Um, but I did a first scientific project. I, I turned it into a scientific product and I um, uh, scanned 20,000 papers and I found 800 papers to contain these duplications. So that's 4%. That's a lot. Is that surprising? It's, it's a lot, yeah. I asked Dr. Bick to tell me what she knows about these so-called paper mills, about who's running them and what kinds of scientists are paying for these fake papers. And I wanted to know why this phenomenon was becoming so visible now. 
Yeah, so paper mills are sort of some entity, and I, I don't know exactly what they are. I believe they're associated with universities. So it's a group of people that sell papers to authors who need paper for papers for their resume or for their career. And they're in particularly the paper mills we found so far are all in China. And that is because there's a specific requirement in China for doctors who finish their medical school and then want to have a career as a doctor in a hospital, not as a researcher. But in order to get that position or a promotion, they need to publish a scientific paper. And this is an almost impossible requirement because these are doctors, they're not researchers. So they, let's say they have a, an 80-hour uh, shift every week, you know, curing patients, and they don't have time to do research. So these people are faced with a very impossible requirement. And so they feel the only way out might be to buy a paper. And then, of course, there's paper mills that make use of that requirement. So they offer papers. And, and so do, you, do we have any idea how common they are? I don't know. It's a difficult to answer question because there are some paper mills we recognize because there's something they had in common. Some, like I said, the, the gender ratios that were suspicious or the, the common photos that they used, or they had like one line in common, like one sentence or a particular phrase that they forgot to change. But that probably means that there's a dozens and, and maybe hundreds of papers that we have not yet recognized as coming from a paper mill. So we recognized the group of papers because they had very similar title structures. So we use that as a sort of a hook to catch these papers. But there might be other titles we don't recognize yet. And, and so there might, be, uh, there might be tens of thousands of these papers out there, I believe. She and I talked about why peer review didn't always catch this kind of fakery. And she reminded me that some very high-profile papers on COVID treatments turned out to have fake data. There was one, particularly prominent one, on hydroxychloroquine, that controversial drug that Donald Trump said would be a game-changer. The fake data came from a company called Surgisphere, and the faulty paper concluded that the drug didn't work. It turned out that some valid papers also showed that the drug didn't work, so that fake data really muddied the waters and confused people. That is why usually every paper is reviewed by at least two or three peer reviewers. So hopefully one will catch one error and the other will catch another error, things like that. But we've had papers uh, like the Surgery Sphere paper that got retracted in The Lancet. Yeah, oh, that yeah. got... That got sort of carefully peer-reviewed, although, you know, it was COVID and everybody was in a hurry to get results. And so this paper was published a little bit in a rush. But the peer reviewers had not had any clue that this data appeared to be falsified as later came out. And, and that is because they, they never saw the original data, but they trusted the data shown in the paper. And this is a paper that was uh, supposed to test uh, the effects of hydroxychloroquine on COVID yes. patients, is that right? And they, Correct. they so that so it is interesting how if something like that touches on something that the public really cares about, it can really wreak havoc. And and I think part of that is because it was COVID and everybody was so desperate for answers. Does hydroxychloroquine work or not? When you're in the middle of a pandemic and there's all these questions you want to answer. I think the audience, the general audience, just expects scientists to solve these problems in, in a couple of weeks. So uh, do you see anything else coming down the pike in terms of forms of misconduct that are happening out there or problems in the scientific literature that are going on beyond the paper mills? I am worried about artificial 
intelligence or things where we can make an artificial face look like it's real. If you go to uh, the, the website, uh, this person doesn't exist. You'll get a, a face that looks very realistic, but it's computer generated. And those developments are, are so fast now. And I've already seen examples where people have been able to computer generate microscopy photos that look very realistic and but they're they're just made with a computer and so it's it's with these image manipulation techniques it's becoming so realistic that it will be almost impossible to tell a real photo apart from a fake photo yeah i guess i wonder whether the tech the technology for committing these sorts of frauds is always a step ahead of the technology for catching them exactly yeah and but in, in some people like DARPA is developing ways to, to catch these things, but they also are developing these images themselves to see if their software can detect it then. So in a way, you, you, have, to, you have to understand how to make them in order to, to be able to catch them. There's a lot of national security issues involved with these things, like satellite images, political images. You can imagine that you can make it look like a prisoner is beheaded by a particular political group, and and maybe in reality that never happened. And and so you can you can start wars if you send out the wrong information. And so this is a very troublesome development, and not not just in politics or, or like famous actresses or, or things like that, but yeah, also in science, like you can just make any any photo look like anything else. So you could, it would be, it could be a whole new level of scientific fraud then. Right, right. And I, I think the only way to ever get out of this is by being able to replicate an experiment. So if you, if you, if you, you can only trust it if another person is able to replicate it and, and do exactly the same experiment and get exactly the same results. Maybe that's the way we need to move forward and do start to do peer review that way. Well, I think this discussion of cheating and other bad behavior on the part of scientists does raise a big question about the whole concept of following the science and whether I should be advocating that people follow the science or whether the process has become irreparably corrupted and broken. One thing I've learned over the years covering a number of different stories on scientific misconduct is that that negative force of cheating and bad behavior is more than countered by a force for good. And that force for good comes from a number of researchers, including the two guests today, who volunteer their time and energy to flag or sniff out cheating, sometimes taking big career risks to blow the whistle. So do I still trust science? Well, not necessarily. If a scientist makes a claim, I ask for evidence, and I ask about alternative explanations for the same thing, and I ask about uncertainty. And I think that's part of the beauty of science. You're not supposed to have blind faith in it. You're supposed to ask questions. As for following the science, I think it's still okay. As long as we don't take it to mean blindly following any scientist's ideas or blindly obeying what scientists tell us we should do. I think it should mean learning about science, paying attention to science, and following science as it progresses and uncovers new ideas and new ways of understanding our world. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator.
If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.